and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beepish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 128th episode of the Not A Cast titled House of Leaves Part 3, an analysis of A Clash of Kings Daenerys 4, in which Danny finally joins the Undying for dinner. Only to find out that she is the main course. It's like a Twilight Zone episode. I wish this wish this was the the modern uh, Twilight Zone reboot, which is the House of the Undying. It would make for like a perfect like uh, hour long episode, wouldn't it? I, you know, having never seen that show, I would say yes because I just trust that you are correct in this matter. Because uh, this is not There's the Twilight the one Zone. Where the aliens are going to eat people. Oh, and they have okay. the cookbook, uh, you know. Oh, it's a cookbook to eat. Man. You know, that's that, that's what this chapter is. They just, I, they just secretly want to eat her. I could feel that, sir. I could definitely feel that. So, <laughs> mm. Yikes. Danny is going to almost get eaten at the end of this chapter. Yummy. This episode, That's the wrong way to put it. To transition. The, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley, Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the seven seas, and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the Deep Ones. Sir Keith J., Master Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster Joom, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, Ward of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Beanfort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym that was Promised, the Hybrid of Priest, Lord Jacob's is it? To the hand of the king, Lady Zena Valyrium, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Worthy East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anamas, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Source of Delica, Low Energy Dent, True Master of the Mainfort, and True Master of Coin, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Thems, Haldiver, the Waiter for T.Y.L., A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Golgarian, the First of Her Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress Farp, the Overwork, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Greek, Game of Thrones, Portraits of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall, Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave, Rob Stark, The Cadaver King, and Horror of Harrenhal, Olaf, Proponent of Establishing a Feudal, Pseudo-Democratic System of Great Councils wherein every count votes, Sir Tim, The Knight Who Is Guided by Voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Date, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lord Jean the Splendid, Master of Coin, Ward of Tampa Bay. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal, and Guardian of the Boneway. Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden. Lord Paramount of the Manor, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, Ward of the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf, and the Pillar of Autumn. Squid Pro Quo, Master of Zorse, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Hedgegal, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, Squire Matt S, Future Sir Matt S, the one who brings balance to the kingdoms, and our newest member of the Nazball Council, everyone say hi and give a warm welcome to B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall. 
So thank you to our Not A Small counselors. And of course, welcome to Queen B-Word. Welcome. Thank you, as always, to our counselors. And thank you, of course, so much to, to B-Word. Queen B-Word, we love you. Thank you so much for joining us on the council. Yeah, it's so nice to have you around with us. And our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dark Devos, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. So, Nelson the Hammer, our not-a-small-council Prince of Dragonscone, asked us a question back in uh, February 2019 <laughs> that we originally told them we'd answer for our Game of Thrones Daenerys 9. So, sorry about that, Nelson. Thanks for your patience. We'll uh, we'll take care of it here. It was all my fault. It was all my fault because oh, I saw it and I saw the question. I said, oh, we're definitely going to do it for that episode, but no, we're now doing it um, here. Sorry. Better late than never. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Nelson asks... Dear Amen Brothers, love, love, love the show. Your live stream was a blast, and I can't wait to find out which chapter you'll be covering for the next one. Also really looking forward to your Q&A wrap-up to your Fire and Blood coverage. Speaking of Targaryens, I have a question about one of their more infamous practices, the incest. Throughout the main series and in Fire and Blood, we see examples of bad, incestuous Targaryen marriages, Maegor Reyna and Aerys Tyrella, among others, as well as good ones, Jaehaerys and Alysanne and Balon Alyssa. Other examples of incest in the series, namely Craster and his daughter wives and Jamie and Cersei, are clearly marked as not only taboo but morally reprehensible, though for different reasons. However, as we see very clearly in Foreign Blood, George does not seem to have quite the same attitude toward Targaryen incest. So my question is this, to what degree are we, the reader, meant to condemn or frown upon Targaryen incest? And what problems do you see it causing that do not occur in cases of non-incestuous Targaryen marriages? And that's a fair and complicated question uh, mm-hmm. from Nelson. So uh, w- what do you make of that, Jeff? What is, is there a, a spectrum George is working from here? Because, you know, Nelson's unquestionably right that there are relationships like Jaehaerys and Alysanne that George just, just does not write the same as, you know, Craster and Gilly. Yeah, I think it's an excellent question. I think he brings up a lot of great points in that the Targaryen incest is supposed to be a little bit better than, than Craster and Gilly. I think that part of it is that... There's no real consent involved with with Craster and Gilly, but that goes a little bit beyond the that, that's that, that's sort of a separate issue, but also it's kind of the same issue as well. And then how much consent did any of these brides actually have? As we know, Ares and Rayla were kind of forcibly wed by by at the behest uh, of of Egg Egg on the fifth. That was not something that they actually wanted to do, but they ended up being forced to do that. I, I think honestly, the answer is that. George is trying to do something of establishing why the Targaryens have this draconic connection, their ability to connect with their dragons. And he's ended up focusing it on this incest and about maintaining a pure bloodline or somewhat pure bloodline, because even like Daenerys doesn't have just pure Targaryens all the way down the line. It's actually quite it's a bit more complicated than, than that, as she has numerous ancestors from the Blackwoods to the Martells to others that are in that are in there as well. I think also, too, that what we're seeing is is that I'm not sure that George is necessarily I, I think that George I'll put it this way. I, I don't I think that George would condemn incest in the real world, the, the real practical world that we're in right now. But at the same time, he also has this thing about like the real world and the Westerosi world, what's happening in one place is, uh, and what's occurring in, in the other place, the real world versus the, the Middle Earth type of world. And the mores are a little bit different. And now they're not totally different, but I mean, there are some differences specifically with regard to marriage customs and guest right being the biggest thing. And of course, not killing, uh, you know, your brother, your, 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 your blood relation. Um, 
I guess that's actually in the real world. Yeah, I'm kidding. I know, I know in the real world, you're not supposed to kill your brother or your father and stuff like that. Anyways, all that's ideally. To, ideally, all that's to say is that I think that George is somewhat playing with the concept of morality in a different type of environment and world than, than we have right here. And at the same time, I think in the real world, he would also be like, yeah, incest is really bad. Don't actually do that in real life. This is a fantasy series at some level. I'm doing this because I'm trying to draw connections from between the, dra- the dragons and the Targaryens. And that's kind of what I'm going. But kind of what I'm doing. But I don't fully know personally. And I'm curious what your take is. What do you think? Well, I think that what you were getting at in terms of the gap between the abstract and how it's realized is important. Because I can definitely imagine like, you know, an incestuous relationship between consenting adults who are siblings who don't intend to have kids. I, you know, part of me feels like, like, what's my real right to object to that? Like, it might gross me out. But the harm, I don't see, I don't, you know, what the harm being done is. But, like, you know, again, the Craster and Gilly example holds, like, that, you know, the relationships don't exist in a vacuum. They're built on pre-existing power dynamics, and there's, you know, there's often going to be something untoward going on there, given just being raised as family. It's just a different emotional connection. Yep. And so I I think, I think George is definitely, you know, I think George is understanding that within a, bad practice there are still gradations of how it's practiced right which doesn't you know that doesn't justify it but you know the the, the of course like like any other like any other negative practice you can you have a jaharis and alisan and you know i don't know if an exception necessarily justifies the rules but just dramatically you know he, he wanted there to be characters with different fates so of course that's going to work out the, the targaryens are def- you know definitely driven this way in, in terms of holding on to magical power but also because they think they're supreme and i think those two things go hand in hand and it's hard to separate the two you know the targaryens racial supremacy from their magical powers and which one justifies the other overall i think you know george i think puts it into the context like any other sexual practice of who's in charge and who gets to make decisions and i think that's really what matters most and i think that's what separates jaharis and alisan alisan had a certain amount of freedom not <laughs> everything but a certain amount versus gilly who has nothing and that, i think that's the distinction that matters i think that is absolutely a distinction that matters ultimately as well but again still don't practice incest it is against law and um that's potentially have bad consequences in the real world in the targaryen but world of westeros it's a little bit different Thank you so much to Nelson for the question, and if you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Not A Cast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can get show notes, bonus episodes, access to the Not A Slack for our two highest patrons, and now merch, baby. Mm-hmm, merch indeed. And as we recently announced, the two winning designs for our merchandise were Lightbringer and Amen Brother. And Mallory is, as we far as we know, and Mallory is deep in the process of completing her work for those designs right now. Final designs should be back our way at the start of October, and we'll be ordering shirts for all of our Sworn Sword and Hire patrons. And if you are a Sworn Sword and Hire patron and you haven't sent us your address, please send us your addresses via Patreon message or emailing us at notacastasof at gmail.com. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Danny, she had just seen Westeros and, uh, you know, the House of the Undying, her dad doing war crimes and Rhaegar <clears throat> playing Wonderwall and a stupid-ass harp singing about the Song of Ice and Fire. Let's find out what new wonders and terrors Danny will see in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Daenerys 4, Part 3. Danny walks for what seems like an hour and she finds herself going down into the darkness. But as she proceeds down the stairs, the torches start to gutter out. There were only 20 left behind her, and there was something else down there, too. And as she listened, it seemed as if she heard something else coming, shuffling and dragging itself slowly along the faded carpet. Terror filled her. She could not go back, and she was afraid to stay here. But how could she go on? 
There was no door on her right, and the steps went down, not up. Yet another torch went out as she stood pondering, and the sounds grew faintly louder. Drogon's long neck snaked out, and he opened his mouth to scream, steam rising from beneath, from between his teeth. He hears it too. Danny turned to the blank wall once more, and there was nothing. Could there be a secret door? Or a, a door I can't see? Another torch went out. Another. The first door on the right, he said. Always the first door on the right. The, for- the first door on the right. It came to her suddenly. It's the last door on the left. She flung herself through. Beyond was another small room with four doors. To the right she went, and to the right, 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 until she was dizzy and out of breath once more. Danny finds herself in a stone chamber, but she walks through a haunted house door that's shaped like a mouth, and she finds Pyatt Pre Wait, the exhibit is done? So, so soon? Pyatt has the same question that I have, wondering whether the Undying were done with Danny. But Danny is confused, saying that she hasn't actually found the Undying. You have taken the wrong turn. Come, I will lead you. Pyatt Pre held out his hand. Danny hesitated. There was a door to her right, still closed. That's not the way, Pyatt said firmly, his blue lips prim with disapproval. The Undying Ones will not wait forever. Our little lives are no more than a flicker of a moss wing to them, Danny said, remembering. Stubborn child, you'll be lost and never found, Pyatt said. Danny walked away from him to the door on the right. No, Pyatt screeched. No, to me, come to me. Literally, that's like eight, eight E's for me is what George writes there, so spare me. His face crumbled inward, charging, changing it to something pale and worm-like. Danny heads up a stairwell and climbs, remembering that the house of the Undying did not seem to have towers. The stair opens and she sees wooden doors made of black ebony and white wormwood with the grains swirling and twisting into a bizarre pattern. It was beautiful and scary at the same time. Danny tells herself not to be afraid and prays to the warrior and the Dothraki horse god for strength and continues walking forward. Beyond the doors was a great hall and a splendor of wizards. Some wore sumptuous robes of ermine, ruby velvet, and cloth of gold. Others fancied elaborate armor studded with gemstones or tall pointed hats speckled with stars. There were women among them dressed in gowns of surpassing loveliness. Shafts of sunlight slanted through windows of stained glass and the air was alive with the most beautiful music she had ever heard. A kingly man in rich robes rose when he saw her and smiled. Daenerys of House Targaryen, be welcome. Come and share the food of forever. We are the undying of Karth. Long have we awaited you, said a woman beside him, clad in rose and silver. The breast she had left bare in a Carthine fashion was as perfect as a breast could be. We knew you were coming to us, the wizard king said. A thousand years ago we knew that I've been waiting all this time. We sent the comet to show you the way. We have knowledge to share with you, said a warrior in shining emerald armor and magic weapons to arm you with. You have passed every trial. Now come and sit with us and all your questions shall be answered. Danny steps forward, but Drogon jumps and flies to the ebony and werewood door and begins biting into the wood. The handsome man laughs and calls Drogon a willful beast. By the way, would Danny like to learn how to speak dragon? Huh? Yeah? No? This causes Danny a fair bit of doubt. Danny pushes the heavy door with all her strength and finally it moves. The, wizard, the wizards continue to call after her, but Drogon was flying ahead, and Danny passes into the worst kind of fucked up nightmare that a bad trip could bring. I'm assuming. I don't do the drugs. A long stone table filled this room. Above it floated a human heart swollen and blue with corruption, yet still alive. It beat a deep, ponderous throb of sound, and each pulse sent out a wash of indigo light. The figures around the table were no more than blue shadows. As Danny walked to the empty chair at the foot of the table, they did not stir nor speak, nor, nor turn to face her. There was no sound but the slow, 
deep beat of the rotting heart. Mother of dragons, came a voice, part whisper and part moan. Dragons, dragons, dragons. Other voices echoed in the gloom. Some were male and some female. One spoke with the timber of a child. The floating heart pulsed from dimness to darkness. It was hard to summon the will to speak, to recall the words she had practiced so assiduously. Danny declares that she is Danny of House Targaryen. She wonders if they can hear her. She sits down and then asks the Undying for the wisdom and counsel. What she sees, <laughs> well, it ain't good, I'll say that much. There was an old, wrinkled, hairless man with violet blue lips and blue nails. That beauty, then, stares at an old woman with a silk gown rotting around her body with one withered breast and a blue nipple. Lovely. And suddenly, Danny realizes that the Undying weren't breathing and her eyes weren't seeing. Are, are the Undying dead? Her answer was a whisper as thin as a mouse's whisker. We live, 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 it sounded. Myriad other voices whispered echoes. And no, no, no. Danny wants to know truth. She wonders if the things she had been seeing in her visions were truth or lies. Are they things from the past or events from the future? What does it mean? The shapes of shadows, morrows not made. Drink from the cup of ice. Drink from the cup of fire. Mother of dragons, child of three. Three? Danny did not understand. Three heads has the dragon. The ghost chorus yammered inside her skull and never a lip moving, never breath stirring the still blue air. Mother of dragons, the child of storm. The whispers became a swirling song. Three fires must you light. One for life, one for death, and one to love. Her own part was beating in unison to the one that had floated before her, blue and corrupt. Three mounts you must ride. One to bed, and one to dread, and one to love. The voices were growing louder, she realized, and it seemed her heart was slowing, and even her breath. Three treasons you will know, once for blood, once for gold, and once for love. Dame whispers that she doesn't understand. She asks that they help her and show her. Help her, the whispers mock. Show her. Okay, obviously the dying are good, folks. Then Phantom shivered through the murk, images and indigo. Viserys screamed as the molten gold ran down his cheeks and filled his mouth. A tall lord with copper skin and silver gold hair stood beneath the banner of a fiery stallion, a burning city a burning city behind him. Rubies flew like drops of blood from the chest of a dying prince, and he sank to his knees in the water with his last breath murmured a woman's name. Mother of dragons, daughter of death. Glowing like sunset, a red sword was raised in the hand of a blue-eyed king who cast no shadow. Cloth dragons swayed on poles amidst a cheering crowd. From a smoking tower, a great stone beast took wing, breathing shadow fire. Mother of dragons, slayer of lies. Their silver was trotting through the grass to a darkling stream beneath the sea of stars. A corpse stood at the prow of a ship, eyes bright in his dead face, gray lips smiling sadly. A blue flower grew from a chink in the wall of ice and filled the air with sweetness. Mother of dragons, bright of fire. Mm-hmm. Go on. Just keep going. Just We're doing good here. Just keep going. Keep going. Faster and faster, the visions came in once, one after the other until it seemed as if the very air had come alive. Shadows whirled and danced inside a tent boneless and terrible. A little girl ran barefoot toward a big house with a red door. Miri Mazdor shrieked in the flames, a dragon bursting from her brow. Behind a silver horse, the bloody corpse of a naked man bounced and dragged. A white lion ran through the grass taller than a man. Beneath the mother of mountains, a line of naked chromes crept from a great lake, then knelt shivering before her, their gray heads bowed. Ten thousand slaves lifted blood-stained hands as she raced by, her silver riding like the wind. Mother! They cried. Mother! Mother! They were reaching for her, touching her, tugging at her cloak, the hem of her skirt, her foot, her leg, her breast. They wanted her, needed her, the fire, the life, and Danny, gra and Danny gasped and opened her arms to give herself to them. 
wow, this is this is amazing, right? Yeah, so much to see. Hey, um, wait, why is Drogon so fucking pissed, angry, and screaming? Suddenly, the visions were gone, ripped away, and Danny's gasp turned to horror. The undying were all around her, blue and cold, whispering as they reached for her, pulling, stroking, tugging at her clothes, touching her with their dry, cold hands, twining their hands through her hair. All the strength had left her limbs. She could not move. Even her heart had ceased to beat. She felt a hand on her bare breast, twisting her nipple. Teeth found the soft skin of her throat. A mouth descended on one eye, licking, sucking, ugh, biting. This is normal, right? I mean, just some normal undying, maybe dead people eating Daenerys. Normal. And then Indigo turned to orange and whispers turned to screams. Her heart was pounding, racing in the hands in the... And the hands and mouth mouths were gone. Heat washed over her skin, and Danny blinked at, su- at a sudden at the sudden glare. Perched above her, the dragon spread his wings and tore at the terrible dark heart, ripping the rotten flesh to ribbons. And when his head snapped forward, fire flew from his open jaws, bright and hot. She could hear the shrieks of the undying as they burned. Their high, thin, papery voices crying out in the tongues long dead. Their flesh was crumbling parchment. Their bones dry, wood soaked in tallow. They danced as the flames consumed them. They staggered and writhed and spun and raised blazing hands on high, their fingers bright as torches. Danny gets up to her feet and charges through the fire and the flames and the dying and carries on as the room burns behind her. She calls for Drogon and he follows her through the fire. She finds herself in a hallway searching for a door to her right, but there are only doors to her left. But finally, finally, she sees a door straight ahead, a door like an open mouth. She races for it. When she spilled onto the sun, the bright light made her stumble. Pyatpree was gibbering in some unknown tongue and was hopping from one foot to the other. When Danny looked behind her, she saw thin tendrils of smoke forcing their way through the cracks of the ancient stone walls of the Palace of Dust and rising from beneath the black tiles of the roof. Howling curses, Pyatpree drew a knife and danced toward her, but Drogon flew at his face. Then she heard the crack of Jogo's whip, and never was a sound so sweet. The knife went flying, and an instant later, Rakara was slamming Pyat to the ground. Sir Jorah Mormont knelt beside Danny in the cool green grass and put his arm around her shoulder. Whew. And that is A Clash of Kings Daenerys 4 Part 3 and the conclusion of a top five most important chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. You have to admit, the end of this chapter is wonder and terror, baffling and exciting, skin-tingling fun, and fucking horrifying. This is it. What did you think of this chapter, sir? So there are three chapters in A Clash of Kings that I love the most. The Holy Trinity of Danny Four, Davos Two, and Catelyn Seven. In all three of those chapters, George builds to the reveal of a shadowy light in the darkness, the corruption of life and beauty unveiling itself to the POV. In Catelyn Seven, as we'll get to, that figure is purely human. It's Jamie Lannister. But in this chapter, as in Davos Two. The revelation is magical in origin, and so functions as a window onto how the author sees the forces of life, death, and beyond that define this world. Davos, too, danced around the shadow, the thing that killed Renly which no one could name, until it was reborn to kill again. Danny Four draws us closer and closer as we go to the Undying, who are central to George's conception and conveyance of this story, despite this being their sole appearance. As with Melisandre's shadow birth, all the build-up could not prepare us. George's writing achieves a level here that approaches the mythological. Its naked ambition could have proved catastrophic in lesser hands, but form meets content at every turn. Pure unfiltered imagery exploding into the mind's eye is matched by a master craftsman's attention to structure. 
Our friend Stephen Atwell compared Varus to a classical composer and Littlefinger to a jazz improviser once. And in this chapter, George is somehow both at once. He really, really is. And I think it's just impressive how this chapter is just written. I mean, beyond the visions, beyond prophecy, beyond all the emotional callbacks of Danny's past, we're deep in George's exceptional, really, in terms of writers, an outstanding ability to convey plot and mood through writing the good words, as they say. It's color, it's copper skin, silver hair, a flaming horse. It's evocative wordplay, painting expressionistic pictures, rubies flying like drops of blood. It's the intensely horrifying imagery when the undying come for Danny, their mouth on Danny's eye, licking, sucking, biting. I mean, gosh. So look, I mean, the content of this chapter is just magnificent from soup to nuts. But I want to highlight just the way that George actually words his classical composition and jazz improvisio, 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 whatever it's called, however it's pronounced, how he writes anyways, by God, it, by God, it's a green lime wedge perched atop the blue mountains of my perspiring core's light. Did I do the words right here, George? Please say yes. The true magician here ultimately isn't these those cannibal druggies. It's George of the keyboard. And this is just a magnificent example of George's, some of George's best writing in all the song of Ice and Fire. He's playing every string perfectly, moving us between tones seemingly without effort. And, you know, so picking up from where we were last time, Danny had just left the vision of Rhaegar. And, you know, so far House of the Undying has only teetered on the edge of outright horror. It's keeping its feet firmly planted in the territory of high fantasy. Sure, many of the images were shocking, but they were contextualized as passing images. The vision of Rhaegar title-dropped the series and seemed to serve as the, the still-point core of fantasy itself. And now it's gone, and we're alone in the dark. Hmm. Danny keeps going down the hallway until she reaches a stairway going down. She's not supposed to go down. She's not supposed to go left, but there haven't been any doors to her right. And when Danny looks back, the torches are going out, one by one, and she hears something coming for her. The threat suddenly seems real. It stepped out of the rooms, the visions, the story, so to speak, to hunt Danny, the reader, through the fourth wall. It's an effective scare because we could imagine ourselves in that scenario. Now, it is possible that there's nothing there at all. Danny is extremely high right now, and George pointedly refuses to confirm its existence visually. Then again, Drogon screams as if something is there, if only another illusion. So what does it represent, this beast hunting Danny in the dark? In terms of the plot, George is communicating to us that the Undying might not be playing by their own rules. Danny has done it all right, yet she seems doomed in this moment. I mean, oh yeah, sure, she figures out that the last door on the left is the first one on the right, which, which fits the go-back-to-go-forward, you know, movements of her story... But come on, (laughs) Piat Pri did not warn her about monsters in the hallway. This seems to me like a clue that once again the Carthine are cheating. The pureborn fleeced Danny even as she followed their Byzantine social norms in order to get to meet them. And the same thing is happening here on a more magic and psychedelic level. Just as the prophetic images will be turned against Danny by the Undying themselves, the rules of their house are not there to help her, they're there to trap her in place. Danny will have to break through that structure of text around her to escape. Speaking of text, the weight of history and myth weighs heavily on this part of the chapter. A monster in a labyrinth, I think, has one major association. In terms of the Greek legendarium, the Minotaur and his maze retain cultural fascination as much as the structure of the Odyssey. This is an archetype that we really just can't seem to leave alone. 
in part because it seems to uncannily mirror the workings of our own minds. The Cretan king Minos declared that the gods would bestow upon him anything he could pray for, just as the undying promised Danny. Poseidon sent a bull for him to sacrifice, but Minos sacrificed a lesser bull instead to hold on to the nice one. Poseidon cursed Minos' wife, or got Aphrodite to do it, according to the, the various legends, to become attracted to the bull, and the Minotaur was the result of their assignation. Half bull and half man, caught in between, embodying the dysfunctional relationship between God, nature, and man, as so much of the House of the Undying does. He haunts the labyrinth. Athens paid tribute to Crete by offering up victims to wander the labyrinth before being devoured by the Minotaur until the hero Theseus slew it. So you can think about this. Has Dandy been sacrificed to this beast like the Athenians? Is that what the, the warlocks, the Undying, mm. intended to happen? Or is she Theseus? Has she come to slay the beast? That's kind of how the chapter ends. She certainly becomes a figure of in-universe legend, as Theseus does. And then you think about it in terms of perspective, in terms of reputation, you know, the Minotaur, as we've you know, gone on through history, he's, he's like Grendel in the Beowulf story. He, he's, he's his fellow beast of legend. They've been recast as misunderstood figures of loneliness by some artists, including by our man Borges, who wrote so well about the labyrinth that's inspiring the House of the Undying. He wrote a, a little short story from the perspective of the Minotaur, casting him as just kind of a proud loner, misunderstood by the world, who eventually just gave up and kind of allowed uh, Theseus to kill him. And that's, you know, that's a, a perspective that we can't access about whatever Danny's looking at, because they're forever a monster in our eyes. Danny literally can't see this mm. Minotaur, this monster. She doesn't know its nature. It's all about what it means to see. That's the big driving concern of this of this chapter. I love that. And I think it speaks to something I'll talk about here in a second, but I think that's, that's a really good connection to mythology that George is embedding into the story. And I think uh, another piece that really speaks to the complex work that George is doing with the scene and really with all of the house of the undying is that, I mean, like, even though the images might be mirages, even though the warlocks might be cosplaying Rhaegar Targaryen and Willem Derry, I mean, are they basically the con goers of, you know, the year 300 AC? Who knows? I don't know. I'm, I'm making, I make no judgments here. Even though the warlocks are cheating, as you were saying, there's truth conveyed in the imagery altogether. Here in this hallway, Danny is pursued by a monster. What is the monster precisely? I mean, I think you make a really good case that it could be an actual monster actually in the, there, but also it could be metaphorically be the long night with the torches going out and with the monster being the others coming for Daenerys as well. And there's a degree of truth in that. We can look to the story of the last hero with his torch going out as the White Walkers closed him, closed around him and pursued him through the darkness and see this might be hitting at Danny's true enemy, the others, and what she will actually face when she gets to Westeros and has to confront the others. However, I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb here, potentially gain some criticism myself and say that I think that the monster pursuing Daenerys is both the others and Daenerys Targaryen herself. Okay, I get it. You're already yelling at me. It's fine. I accept that. In A Game of Thrones, Viserys Targaryen repeatedly calls himself, quote, the blood of the dragon. And then when Viserys dies quite peacefully in his sleep, Danny takes on, takes on that moniker of being the blood of the dragon and being the last dragon too. Danny draws an identity from the ancestral heritage of the Targaryens and finds an inner strength in that identity, brought about even more strongly with the birth of the dragons at the end of A Game of Thrones. Then in the Storm of Swords, moving head forward a little bit, that Storm of Swords gives us the gives that identity more meaning with her her using dragon fire to free the slaves in Astapor and liberate most of the slaves in Slaver's Bay altogether. But then at the end of her Storm of Swords arc, she crucifies 163 great masters in vengeance response to their murder of slave children along the milepost to Marine. And when she was crucifying these men, she felt like a quote avenging dragon. But as she died, she started to feel a little bit guilty. Come Danny's first chapter in A Dance with Dragons, she finds out that Drogon burned and ate a child, Azia. 
Her next chapter, Danny 2 in A Dance of Dragons, closes with this haunting, haunting line. Mother of dragons, Daenerys thought. Mother of monsters. What have I unleashed upon the world? A queen I am, but my throne is made of burned bones and it rests on quicksand. Without dragons, how could she hope to hold Marine, much less win back Westeros? I am the blood of the dragon, she thought. If they are monsters, so am I. So yes, I do think that it's the others pursuing Daenerys with all the last hero imagery. I do think there could potentially be a real monster down there with the House of the Undying pursuing Danny with the torches guttering out behind her. But I also think it's a dull, it's a darker version of herself pursuing her too. Her father and her brother's memory and the ghosts and their ghosts and also her own inner dragon and the potential monster that lives within her and within the heart of every human being that exists on Planetos. I think that's a terrific way of looking at it. It syncs so well with the images we saw last week of Rhaegar and Eris. These are visions of truth that are beyond her, but they are also in some way mirrors that reflect back on her. And teasing the two apart is difficult, but that's the nature of what Danny is dealing with. Like that dream sequence in book one where she took off Rhaegar's helmet and it was her. There's a similar dynamic at work here. Hmm. And then she, she uh, moves on from this, this little hallway of doom section of the House of the Undying, and she runs into her next vision, the vision of a fake Piat Pri. So this one isn't as emotionally depthful as the rest, but it is notable in terms of how the House of the Undying works and what it is the Undying want. It works along the same lines of the vision of the house with the red door. It is a familiar space. It's not a vision of the unfamiliar past slash future. And someone Danny knows is trying to lure her into stepping through the door. It's part of the House of the Undying as a temptation, Karth trying to get Danny stuck in place. And Danny solves it in the same way a reader realizes that details don't add up. Unlike Willem Derry, this Piat Pri is potentially the real deal. You know, Danny isn't gullible to believe this might be him. It's conceivable she somehow found her way back to the entrance. You think about characters in stories like you know, Dark City or Total Recall that don't know whether or not they're in virtual reality and have to examine clues. Danny quickly sees through him. He says that she took a wrong turning, but we know she didn't. Danny sees another door to her right, and he says, well, that's the wrong way without any further elaboration. He says the Undying won't wait forever, trying to, you know, hurry her along. Danny remembers that Piet said the Undying don't think of time like we do, so no, they will wait forever. And this is a parallel to what we talked about in Arya 9 with Zack, about how, how Arya outfoxed Jock and Hagar due to her understanding of the rules of fairy tales from Old Nan stories. Danny has kept in mind the rules of the House of the Undying, the rules of Wonderland and the Labyrinth, even though they don't make sense. <laughs> and so she has managed to pass the test. The visions so far can be sorted into two trios. This is the sixth vision, so two trios, two triptychs curated for her. In the first trio, we had two images of the horrors of war, the woman under assault by the kings and the Red Wedding, and then a temptation of peace, Willem Derry, the house with the red door. And Danny has to resist it, despite the other images making her long for that peace. In the second trio, we have had two images of the folly of prophecy from Eris and Rhaegar. Now Danny must outwit a false image, a false prophecy, you could say, by remembering the rules she must follow. This vision, however, ends very differently from the Willem Derry one, its equivalent. In this one, the fake Piat Pri suddenly gives away the game, calling out to Danny threateningly as she runs away, crumbling into something worm-like. 
And isn't it like so metal that his face collapses and turns into that mm-hmm. worm-like thing? It's it's ah, it's so awesome and, and gnarly as well. And this is also something that we see in the Forsaken when Dampere looks at what he thinks is his brother Uragon. Shout out to our uh, our episodes on the Forsaken, which we were concluding at the end of this week, recording anyways, and releasing out for our patrons. And what is it that Yuri says to Aaron there in that scene? Worms, worms await you, Aaron. And immediately after that, Yuri's face sloughs off and we find out that it's not Yuragon Greyjoy in there after all. It's instead Euron Greyjoy's face underneath. Given that touchstone of what Aaron sees in the Forsaken, I think we can probably attribute Pyat Pri's face dissolving into worms to the Shaven Evening having a bit of an impact on Daenerys Targaryen here. Having never done the drugs, can we say that the quote worm is turning? <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, this no, this is the bad trip battling with the good trip throughout this chapter. It's a comforting, sunny image. Oh, okay, you can just start over. I'll take care of you. But it's hiding a hideous vision of decay and death, that worm face emerging. The shiny lure of story is being used to cover up entropy, the city of bones that will dominate Danny's story in the end. It's poking through the surface. I talked last week about uh, the Willem Derry that Danny sees in the vision potentially being a spirit world resident of the House of the Undying, disguising themselves as Willem Derry. But it seems like this one really might be someone else coming mm. through Piet Pri's face at the end there. As with the hallway, the, ho- the horror is ramping up as the trip gets heavier in Danny's mind. We've gone from like visions she can look at to something's in the hall, something's trying to, some worm-like is trying to get her. All of that culminates with the Undying and the, the audience gets to feel that intensity. Danny just barely avoided being claimed by whatever that thing is, a grasping entity of the reflected world beyond the physical. It's powerful, but pitiful in its screeching, crumbling state as it reaches for her. It's not something you want to be like, and that leads perfectly to the Undying. It absolutely does. And when we get in-depth on each of the visions, to include this one, I think we see more and more of the different temptations that the Warlocks and the Undying, or both, are using to keep Danny in the House of the Undying forever. I mean, last week it was visions, weaponized nostalgia, utilizing the House of the Red Door, visions of Rhaegar, terrifying visions of Eris, and the Rape of Westeros too. Here, this seems like a more minor temptation, as you were talking about, mislead Danny to go through the wrong door in order to keep her trapped in the House of the Undying. On the question about whether this was Pyat Pri or fake Pyat Pri, it's, it's kind of fascinating, at least to me. I, I mean, at chapter's end, we see Danny emerging from the house and finding Pyat Pri dancing from one foot to the other and speaking in tongues like some sort of Pentecostal from, you know, in, in the southern part of the United States. Maybe Pyat is in the house of the Undying with Danny in some sense, skin changing a version of himself. I don't know. It's fucking weird. And it's the fucking Catalina wine mixer or the house of the Undying. Anyways, the temptation here reads as an appeal to the, thor- an appeal to the, th- to authority. Pyatt is the authority figure, and he uses his seeming wisdom and knowledge to push Daenerys in the wrong direction. And this, and ain't this just Danny's story in miniature? Illyrio, Jorah, and many, many, many others attempt to use their authority figure status to drive Danny in one direction or the other. I mean, Jorah's just the worst when it comes to this, with him constantly being Danny's tour guide and using that uh, gain knowledge and authority to push her away from Westeros and, of course, other men, most importantly. These people do this out of not not out of concern for Danny, but for their own reasons. So what Piatri is doing here, or fake Piatri is doing here, is very much in keeping with the archetypal shitty men that Danny has encountered so far in her story, and will keep encountering as her story progresses forward. Thankfully, Danny easily sees through this deception on Piat's part, and at times she's going to see through Jorah and Illyrio and others as well. 
But first, she has more proximate deceptions to see through in the form of the Undying themselves. Or is it the Undying? This whole chapter has been interrogating the borders between image and observer, thought and action, and the Undying exist beyond all of them. Danny climbs the Tower of Babel. She's climbing the fiery ladder to the source of these godlike visions. And she remembers that the House of the Undying, from the outside, didn't seem to have towers. So this is the ultimate fantasy space. It's an Olympian plane of divinity. It's the room at the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's the garden of unearthly delights sought by every shaman and stoner and seeker of knowledge in our own history. This is where you can be whatever you want to be. It is the physical projection of consciousness, a font of divinity where word becomes flesh. Time stops. Space falls away. The elements of creation belong not to an uncaring god, nor the whims of chance, but to you, the mind's eye. Danny passes through doors of ebony and weirwood, black and white, yin and yang, night and day, tragedy and comedy, Stannis and Renly, <laughs> the marriage of heaven and hell, the extremes of humanity in Danny's story. These are the doors of perception, the doors of wisdom, as Piat Pri called them. And this is the process that every human being goes through. Most of us aren't wizards, most of us aren't the mother of dragons, but all of us must wake up to the limitations of our own perception. The fact that the lens through which we access everything is fatally flawed. We don't live in reality. We live in our minds, which are hopelessly divided frameworks we can't help but impose on everything, distorting it. So much of human activity is spent just trying to get outside our own heads. Art, faith, empathy, community, love. But there's only one way out, and that way is death. But we're in the house of the undying. They found a different way out. Transcendence via drugs, prophecy, and story itself. It's no accident that Arya journeys to the house of black and white, like the doors of the chamber of the undying. The faceless men, too, are mired in death in order to transcend it. It's another all-consuming death cult. As such, these doors are both beautiful and frightening for Danny, both wonder and terror. They twist and interweave the opposite colors feeding on each other, just like how she prays to both the Seven and the Dothraki gods for support. Always these binaries with blurring borders in the House of the Undying and Danny's story as a whole. The doors tempt her toward wisdom, but their ambiguous nature also frightens her, as does the sense of unreality at work. After all, there's suddenly sunlight in a house that has no windows, <laughs> at the top of a tower invisible from the outside. So where are we? We're nowhere, and yet everywhere, omnipotent and invisible, like a god, like a reader. And it is in those terms that the Undying present themselves to Danny in one of the most brilliant fourth wall-breaking gambits in a story full of them. The Undying present themselves as, quote, a splendor of wizards with luscious robes and glittering armor. They tell Danny that she is a protagonist, beloved of prophecy, that they have awaited her arrival for centuries and sent the Red Comet to bring her to them. She has passed every trial, and now they have important knowledge and magic weapons to share with her. This is pure wish fulfillment <laughs> shorn of conflict. It's like the last line of Willy Wonka, don't forget what happened to the man who suddenly got everything he ever wanted. He lived happily ever after. The Undying are tempting Danny with the resolution of everything that eats away at her from the inside. There's a plan for her, and there always was. 
Turns out she's been carrying out that plan expertly through all her trials and tribulations without even knowing it. Good job, Danny. You win at life. <laughs> the most perfect and powerful people in the universe think she's just the best. And now they want to make everything easy for her forever. Danny was right that the comet was a sign sent to her. She was right to seek wisdom amidst all the snares and false faces of Karth. She has completed her character arc, according to the Undying, and she shall now be rewarded. With power, of course, but also that sense of, of completion, satisfaction. The Undying offer Danny the serenity that will continually be, be denied to her in Slaver's Bay. Nothing there is ever as simple as she wants it to be. Mm, absolutely. I can't wait for those chapters to get to Storm and the Dance of Dragons, specifically on the on Slaver's Bay. And I think the other aspect, too, is that the Undying fashion the external world around Danny, utilizing science importance to paint a narrative that all points to one person, Daenerys of House Targaryen. Is it objectively true that all the signs importance are pointing to Danny? I mean, maybe. I mean, check back at our discussions on Danny 10 from A Game of Thrones and Danny 1 from A Clash of Kings for more of that discussion. But do the Undying actually know all of this, or are they taking the true signs and wonders and saying it points to them? Look, Danny, everything that you've ever wanted, it's all pointing directly back at us. Signs, wonders, everything is all leading here to the House of the Undying. And this reads like the latest iteration of something that we saw and we examined at significant depth at the start of A Clash of Kings, where everyone is fashioning the comet to fit their narrative. The comet was heading east. That meant that the comet was telling Danny to come east to Karth and to the Undying, right? I mean, probably not. And the Undying know this. That's what makes this specific bullshittery appear so galling. I mean, I say appear because what's the functional difference in end state between Melisandre fashioning nature around Stannis and stating that it's his comet and what the Undying do to Danny here? I don't think there's actually really much of a functional difference. Prophecy and wonder are mummer's tricks, shadows at a wall, drink, that ensnare people into falling behind whatever ideology the magician, the priest, or the priestess wants people to fall behind. The House of the Dying is not the end game for Danny. It's a pit stop along her road to destiny. But as we've been saying, the House of the Undying is about the reader as much as the character, our own doors of perception along with Danny's. The Undying aren't being framed here only as Danny's dreamweavers. They are the embodiment of the most basic narrative elements of fantasy. The tropes are as simple and unadorned as they could possibly be. Pointy wizard hats, stilted <laughs> declarative dialogue, magic weapons for the hero. This is George breaking past all the sedimentary layers of history built into the genre, all the adult complications to reach the childish core of it. For kids, fairy tales are spaces of projection acting out the stories with yourself as the characters. The Undying in this scene are deliberate stock archetypes, empty vessels of awesome to imagine yourself into. <laughs> They're creatures of song. That's why we hear music with no musicians. There's a, I brought up Mulholland Drive talking about this chapter, and there's a, a scene in that movie where a character uh, comes onto a stage and points out that all the music they're hearing is recorded because there is no band, there is no musicians, no Ibanda. And that points to the kind of the manipulated nature of art. And the same thing is happening here. We hear music because we're inside music, the song of ice and fire. What the Undying say is the temptation for Danny. But how the Undying look and talk, that's a temptation for the fantasy reader. In both cases, we yearn for simplicity. Danny wants everything to work out, and we want childish comfort. In both cases, George is encouraging us to check our instinctive desires and dig deeper with our critical faculties. That's the true arc of this chapter. We're being shown what 
everything working out for our favorite character would look like. And it's a trap, nothing but an image lacking substance. We have to grow up. We have to put aside our childish things, our wish-fulfillment relationship to the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. George understands the gut-visceral appeal of fantasy, a better world realized. But when he grew up, he looked back with a skeptical eye. The surface can easily be mistaken for substance, so people who absolutely do not believe in a better world can pretend they do. The Undying weave a web of propaganda around Danny, reshaping everything into a narrative that seems to empower her, but really empowers them. We sent the comet. We hold the key to your destiny. It's comforting in the same way storybook fantasy is comforting. The way Willem Derry's loving outstretched hand was comforting. But Willem Derry is ash and dust, and these comforts are being framed as deceptive disguises. The Undying are cosplaying as perfect fantasy characters, as you were saying, and this is where the mirror of the House of the Undying fully, finally turns on the audience. This is us. This is what we do as fantasy readers. This is what we do as cosplayers, as podcasters, as panelists, as fanfiction writers, etc. We wear glittering suits of imaginary armor, names like Brendan Beefish <laughs> and Poor Quentin, for example. <laughs> this is what all the teasing around the edges of the fourth wall has been leading to. A reflected tableau of you, the reader, the seeker of knowledge. It's in part a critical portrait, as we'll see very soon when Danny gets to the Undying as they actually are. You can't live inside projected story forever. But it's also a loving tribute to the genre, as with the chapter as a whole. This is a portrait of a warm, loving community welcoming a newcomer. Mm. And fantasy, sadly, as a community, isn't always as good at that as it should be. But you can see George imprinting his own wonder at being welcomed to the Pantheon, what must have it felt for him to like to see a Game of Thrones, the first book, receive so much praise? It felt like this. The Undying offer to teach Danny the secret speech of Dragonkind. And that is a, a most tempting phrase, because Danny has never been able to control her dragons. Mm. This becomes an increasingly important part of her story in A Dance with Dragons. Again, the Undying are offering to easily resolve this central conflict for her without any actual effort. By resisting this temptation... Danny does give up on being able to completely control the forces of both creation and destruction the dragons represent. And once again, the emphasis is on text, the secret speech of dragonkind. Hidden text, mistranslated text, whose meaning will be lost in time. Those are the concerns of the House of the Undying, like so many of its metafictional forebears. It's the rush of literary accomplishment, even apotheosis in this magical context, but one of the major ideas in A Song of Ice and Fire is that apotheosis is always temporary. Trying to make it a permanent state is most unwise. It is Drogon, Danny's id, who senses the corruption at work and forces her to literally look outside the doors of perception. There's another door. It's older, splintered, and plain. Critically, it's gray. The merging of the black and white colors of the other doors. This is reconciliation, the emerging truth. It stands to the right of the doors of perception, and so Danny goes through the gray door, once again proving, like Arya, that mastering fairy tale rules through literary analysis wins the day, despite <laughs> Danny being high as balls. The projected undying chaser with voices sweeter than song, like the song of ice and fire Rhaegar was talking about. It's the lure of pure narrative, overwhelming in its appeal, but it's always a manipulated image that Danny has just barely dodged. 
I think you're absolutely right. I think we see that with Willem Derry and with Rhaegar, both Willem Derry reaching out for for Danny and Rhaegar attempting to tempt and tempt, tempt her with the the lure her with the with the harp. I think also like the colors, black and white, they're powerful ones that George does a lot of work with. The trunk and branches of werewoods are white with red leaves. The whites have white faces with cold black hands. The temple of the faceless men is called the House of Black and White. And yet, this is not a black and white world, much as our own world isn't. George has talked about how he doesn't like black and white characters in story or black and white plots either. He likes gray and all of the characters are gray, as he says over and over and over again. And I love the detail you were alluding to about how the door's grains are swirling and twisting with a strange interwoven pattern. Part of me thinks that George is going super meta here with Danny as the reader avatar. It's kind of uncomfortable for us as readers to examine a work of fiction in which the characters and moral stakes are not really as clear cut as we might like. Now, while George himself has spoken frequently and often about how his about his great love for Tolkien, he's as you were talking about when he looks back at fantasy that he grew up in loving in his youth. He's he's looking back at it now as an adult and looking at the the phrase that Tolkien uses, Aragorn ruled wisely and well, as the endpoint for Aragorn's arc, and going like, "Hey, wait, what did Aragorn do to all the orcs and the orc babies? What was Aragorn's tax policy?" I mean, fans too roll their eyes at George's at George here talking about the tax policy, but he's calling Tolkien to the map to add the gray between back into the stories, to add gray and ambiguity back into fiction itself. So here, George is calling us to look away from the glittering images of the undying as they appear, as they wish to appear, rather, and instead go through the strange and twisting door to see the world as it actually is. Gray. Yes, I love that. So what does Danny perceive when she takes this better path? What truth does this unveil for her? All through these episodes, we've been talking about the house of the undying as the ultimate shadow on a wall, the projected image from Plato's cave. It's a fantasy so immersive it comes to resemble reality, with a little help from psychedelic <laughs> drugs. It's a dream world, a fiction you can live inside. Danny has managed to dodge every trap and resist every temptation, and so she is permitted to step behind the curtain and discover the dreamers. Here at last is the reality of the House of the Undying, or as close to reality as we can get. Here is the center of power, the true face of Karth, the eye of the beholder. It's an image of absolute indulgence. Humanity so enthralled to its own satisfaction that it becomes hollowed out of all purpose and meaning. The undying are gathered around a table, over which hovers a heart. It is blue with corruption. It should be dead, but it's not. It lives on, hideously. It beats, generating not only sound, but light, a wash of indigo light, as George describes it, that seems to bathe the room and its inhabitants, staining them like the shade of the evening stains the lips of those who drink too much of it. This heart has literal and figurative implications, like the rest of the imagery in its house. I say its house because the heart, not the undying, seems to be the primary resident, Hmm. the source of all the power and visions. It is the center of the maze, and the Undying built their house around it. On a literal level, the heart is what allows for the creation and manipulation of the divine imagery seen throughout the house of the Undying. The imagery gets wilder the closer you get to the heart and the more time you spend around it. The heart also physically changes those close to it. Danny's heartbeat and breathing get slower just from a little time in this chamber. The Undying are the way they are because they've been this close to the heart for years. And I think too, as we're going to discover later in this chapter, that the heartbeat starts to mirror Danny's own heartbeat, or is Danny's heartbeat mirroring the Undying's heart? It's it's sort of unclear. I, I do like the former interpretation because it helps explain why Danny has been invited here in the first place. 
She's food, as we'll find out soon enough, and her heartbeat, her flesh, are consumables for the undying. The heartbeat of the bloated, corrupt human heart is a vampire. Metaphorically speaking, of course, the real vamps are the undying themselves, drawing its rhythmic beat from Danny's living heart. And in a book where we have the fiery heart of Valor found in Stannis' sigil, representing Stannis setting his own heart on fire in the form of burning Shireen, we should maybe think about the undying heart in similar lens. Is this a reflection of Danny's heart, present or future? It could be. It may also be another of George's warnings to Danny of what her heart will become if she allows the, if she allows the monster to come to the fore. Swollen and bloated with corruption, two hearts beating as one, as the song in Westeros says. This is the warning to Danny that continues from the monster in the hallway before, at least in my opinion. I totally agree, and it's also the other side of the coin from the previous image of the Undying dressed up in their finest. George is showing us the nature of magic in this world. The Undying can't really tell the difference between reality and fantasy anymore. So who cares if their real bodies are decrepit mummies? They can just imagine ones they like better. One of the projected Undying in the previous image was a woman with a bared breast in the Carthine style, and one of the real Undying also has a breast exposed. So, okay, that's her. And the fir- in the first image, the breast was, as George describes it, as perfect as a breast can be. And this one is withered. One is the idealized self-image projected into art, and the other is aging and mortality. The only thing as universal as death is the desire to escape death. And that desire is so powerful that it has animated all-consuming delusion. The undying have become so inhuman, empty vessels for the power coursing through them, that Danny wonders whether they are dead at first. And yeah, this is who Danny could become if she descends into dragon dreams, so enthrall to the vanished past and infinite future that she forgets the present. On the more figurative side of things, this heart is the human heart in conflict with itself. The concept that George says drives the whole series. It's dead, but alive. Its beat is sound, but also image. It creates visions of truth, kind of. <laughs> Reconciling its contradictions in search of wisdom is what Danny has come to do. Wisdom is what she asks for from the undying. In the process, she hopes to reconcile her own contradictions, her, home, her own human heart in conflict with itself. But the Undying couldn't really help her do that even if they wanted to. It's another meta-statement about the nature of narrative itself. This heart is a story engine, spitting out manufactured audiovisual tableau like it's the spirit of cinema brought to life. Bearing witness to it is so arresting that it has led the Undying to give up on everything else life has to offer. They live and they know, as they say, art conquering death, waxwing slain reflected in the window pane. But they are stuck on that side of the looking glass from everyone else. Paused in time and therefore alone. One of them is even still a child, a child like many fantasy readers. Hmm. The Undying aren't just a high fantasy opium den. They're a reflection on reader, author, and the evanescent meeting point of both within text. Danny wants truth. She wants the Undying to unravel all the images she just saw. But all they can offer her is more images, shadows, the cup of ice, the cup of fire. This is what it looks like when you fall down the rabbit hole of story so far that you can never make your way back to the surface. The framework is so powerful that it replaces you, mind and body. It's a warning, a cautionary tale, and it's coming from a man who has dedicated himself to storytelling. The doors of perception can slam shut behind you. 
Hmm, a cautionary tale. Is, could you say that Danny is the cautioner here in this case? You sure could. <laughs> the cautioner's tale indeed. <laughs> so not only do the doors of perception slam behind you, they laugh at you, they make fun of you, as Danny's going to find out. Help her, the whispers mocked. Show her. And George gets asked many, many times about major plot points that haven't occurred in the novels yet. Example given, at Balticon, some probably very nice person whose family loves them very much asked a super fucking dumbass question about who Jon Snow's mother was in 2016. My God. Ugh. Now, look, you have a question you desperately want George to answer. Shoot your shot if you see him at a convention or in an email or whatever other format you can get him in. But don't be surprised if the dreamer tells you to, quote, keep reading or have another cheese doodle. Yes, the cheese doodle thing is something that George R. R. Martin has told people before when they asked him a particularly in-depth question about the future of the story. The point being is that the undying work is the avatar of George and characters in their own right, I guess, and they're calling readers and Danny to keep reading and live her own story. But as always, as often, as George keeps telling fans to keep reading, he will also provide fans with little treats, little things that let us know that something is coming down the road. The undying do that here, and they also are providing little treats for Danny, visions of truth and wisdom, the shapes of the past and the future. Sadly, though, these are not the Abramowski family who always had a handful of Reese's peanut butter cups they give to each kid during Halloween in my neighborhood growing up. They're more like the witch from Hansel and Gretel from Grimm's fairy tales who lures the children into the, her house with treats in order to eat the kids. Yikes, wait a second. Exactly, it's that same kind of labyrinth with the breadcrumbs in Hansel and Gretel that lines up so well with Borges, talking about the Minotaur, talking about the Shining. All these stories come together so perfectly. And of course, the Undying represent authors as well as readers. They've been immersed in imagery so long that they have learned to manipulate it. That's why they were able to present themselves as shining, smiling fantasy archetypes to Danny, seeing if she would fall for that image. They understand story well enough to break it down to its component chunks and move it around to play with their audience, just like George does. They call Danny a child of three. She is born of the structure of story and prophecy. Danny's true father isn't Eris Targaryen, it's George R.R. R. Martin. <laughs> After all, three heads has the dragon, like Rhaegar said. It's the three-act structure, the threefold revelation that George loves, the central number of narrative. Danny is made of threes. She gets three threes in a row in this prophecy. She gets three fires, three treasons, three mounts. The whispers are a swirling song, George writes. It's access to a song of ice and fire itself. This is the buried structure that readers aren't allowed to see, but now we get a glimpse of it. As George conceives of Danny, she is a child of storm and a mother of dragons. Birth amidst tumult. Creation from destruction. An arc from childhood to maturity. It's all about interwoven patterns. Change through repetition of key elements that are rearranged each time. Danny has to return to this holy trinity at every step. Three fires. It's the spark of the soul, that fire within that defines Danny. Three mounts. Her mounts are the means by which the soul works its will on the world. How do you translate that spark into action? And then three treasons, the counter move. That's the means by which the world works its will back on the soul. These are the movements of Danny's story. And each one is ambiguous and multifaceted. She will light a fire for life, the undying say, but also one for death. She will know an intimate treason for blood, but also a more detached one for gold. She will have a mount to bed, but also one to dread. The common element, the thread weaving all of these narrative strands into a single web, 
is love. There's a fire for love and a mount for love and a treason for love. Love is what lasts. Love is what defines us. But because the human heart is divided against itself, our doors of perception forever clouded, love is paired with horror as well as joy. Love comes with betting and dreading, life and death, heaven and hell. But all that stuff aside, <laughs> who are these prophecies referring to? That's what we're yes. here to talk about. Let's do it. The, the fire for life, I think we can all agree, is the dragons. That's, you know, mm-hmm. Danny lit that fire at the end of book one and the dragons came to life as a result of it. I think that's that one's pretty clear. The fire for death, especially after the show, I lean towards that probably being King's Landing. Yeah, I can see that too. And it could also be the fire for death is, is Miri Mazdor that brought about the fire for life for the dragons. As Miri Mazdor tells Danny over and over at the end of A Game of Thrones, only death may pay for life. So that could also be filtering into the fire for life. They could be interconnected. But I do agree that's more, most, more likely than not being King's Landing. Yes, I, I think so too. And I think, you know, the. The fire for love, that might be a, a, a metaphor for John Eris. You know, that's a, a, you know, a fire inside when she falls in love with him. Or maybe she lights a literal fire to save him in some respect, as she did in season seven of the show. The uh, mount to bed, uh, maybe that is the, the silver horse that she literally rode to have her first uh, a sexual experience with Drogo. Or maybe Drogo himself is the mount to bed, given that Danny rides him uh, to have sex at one point. Yeah, it could be. I think, like... Drogo Danny has real affection for Drogo, so I kind of wonder whether this could be his star fulfilling the role as the mount to bed as Danny doesn't actually love him or dread him, but she beds him after the wedding ceremony in a Dance of Dragons Danny ate. Now, the question is whether George had any conception of his star Zoloric on at this point in time, and probably, maybe not. I'm just throwing it out there that he fulfills something along the lines, and this may be something that George garden his way towards as the story grew in the telling. Yeah, you know, his door, we'll come back to his door in a second, but he kind of throws a lot of this off, and I think that's just a product of the the, the Slaver's Bay storyline being much larger than George had intended, I think, while writing A Clash of Kings. Mm-hmm. So that does throw some of this off, and we got to be aware of that. More clear, I think, is the Mount to Dread. I think especially after Daznak's Pit and Dance, it's fair <laughs> to say, that is Drogon. Drogon is a really good choice for that one, and I think it's also evoking Beleriand, the, bro- the Black Dread, and this firmly places Danny as Eris's daughter, Rhaegar's brother, and Aegon the Conqueror's however many greats of a granddaughter. And maybe this is way, way out of left field, and we're going to touch on this as well in a little bit, but could George also be alluding to Euron Greyjoy as well? I mean, given the fact that Euron sends Victarion after Daenerys to be his bride uh, from the Reaver chapter from Feast for Crows, I say I bring it up as a possibility, but I think he fulfills other parts of the prophecy better. Yeah, I think I think so. And I think what you just said about Balerion, the Black Dread, the fact that George uses Dread in both cases, I think that, that makes me think it's definitely supposed to be Drogon. Mm-hmm. Now, Amount to Love, I don't know, like maybe like a ship that takes her to John. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> sure about this one. Maybe she's just mounting John, right? You know, right? As you know, she trained for that with uh, with Drogo. So yes, John John himself could be could, could just be the mount to left there. I there you totally go. see yeah. that. <laughs> and then we go into the treasons, and there's just there's a lot of different answers for these ones. The treason for blood. Um, Danny thinks this was Mary Mazdor. Maybe it was um, Illyrio in regards to to uh, his actual loyalties to Young Grift, or maybe even Barristan. Barristan, Barristan, Bar- no, I'm kidding. Yes, I, I mean yes, yes, and yes. I think all three of those are, are strong possibilities. Also, just to bring it up, kind of another out of left field one: the contract written blood that the Golden Company signs. Um, 
in order to bring young grift onto the to, onto the iron throne some contracts are written in gold some contracts are written in blood i say no more as Illyria tells Tyrion in a dance with dragons in a larger sense let, let's talk about the word treason here not to like get too into the etymology here but has anyone considered that treason is a word that could mean one person committing an act of betrayal or also the overall act of betrayal as committed by people or a group for instance the treason of isengard from the lord of the rings for instance so it could be one traitor or a bunch. George R. Martin is just fucking with the readers for fun, and I love it. It's so delicately worded, you know, that three treasons you will know. Does that mean, you know, you commit them or they're committed against you? Danny assumes committed against her, and I see why, but it's 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 ambiguous on purpose. And, <laughs> you know, you, uh, you talk about the, uh, the, the the treason for gold. You know, could that, again, be Illyrio? He's surrounded by money and associated with money. There's, there's Brown Ben. As Danny will, will think to herself in a dance with dragons, or could it have something to do with Dario in the future, perhaps? Could be as well. Could also be Jorah Mormont as well, who is spying for for Varas, potentially for gold at some point down the road and return to home. Could also be the Golden Company again, treason for gold, which is the original treason against the Targaryens. We find out because they had, the Blackfires betrayed the bastard branch of the Targaryens, betrayed the Red Targaryens, and during the Blackfire rebellions. Again, these are very ambiguous, and I think they fulf- they can fulfill multiple archetypes and characters and groups in the story. For sure, and you know, as you're saying, the definition of treason even throws it off. Like Danny thinks of Mary Mazder was the treason for blood, but did Mary Mazder really betray her? Was she ever at any <laughs> point really allied with Danny? It's 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 hard to split that hair. And then there's the treason for love, which you know, D- you know, Dario comes up as someone heavily involved, you know, in Danny's romantic life, and they might have to have a break at some point. She seems a possibility, perhaps Jorah Mormont, uh, and you know, maybe John again, given how season eight ended up. Yeah, and, and Barristan would be a good person as well to be the treason for love his love for Rhaegar Targaryen is something that he talks about in his chapters in Dance of Dragons I do think that Barrison will be seen by Danny as being if Barrison ends up turn cloaking of course which is totally gonna happen um that he will be seen as the treason for love initially but then John will be the second treason after Danny thinks that the treason has already been solved ah Barrison's that person but then John comes up behind for the uh, as the treason for love but yeah wow it's it's complex and I think it's it's really evocative and again it fits a number of different characters that makes this one of the most thrilling parts of the chapter if we step back from the foreshadowing itself however we see that the structure is being turned against us george interweaves the prophecy with descriptions of danny's heartbeat slowing the voice is growing louder prophecy itself is a weapon story structure the repetition of threes with which we're all familiar is being used by a pack of predators to hunt their prey they are drawing her into their wavelength, making making her more like them and their diseased immortal heart. It's the ultimate temptation, truth. But because these visions are never explained, Danny keeps projecting people into these roles. The treasons are the most ambiguous on purpose because she thinks of them as the most urgent, and yet there's nothing really she can do about it. Prophecy hasn't helped her any more than it did her big brother Rhaegar. It traps her, hemming her in. It's a sword without a hilt. It absolutely is. And the ambiguity in what we're about to discuss stokes a lot of fan debate about the identity of which each of these people represents. And that that's intentional. I mean, more intentional is the impact on Danny. Throughout her journey, she's going to question each of the elements, consistently recasting the identities through both the lens of the present and the memory of the past. And this is not the last time that prophecy will work this way for Danny specifically and for other characters more generally. When Quaithe visits Danny in, Dan- in A Dance with Dragons, she'll warn Danny of different people coming to her and to beware the perfume Seneschal. And Danny will wonder, somewhat hilariously in my opinion, if Resnagmo Resnag is the one to beware of in that prophecy from Quaithe. 
broadly speaking, I think, as you were alluding to, this is how prophecy works in Song of Ice and Fire. It muddles perception, complicates narratives, and makes the hearer more suspicious, and sometimes drives them towards paranoia, too. Danny is having trouble making any sense of this. She's a reader in need of some helpful analysis, and she asks the Undying to point her in the right direction. But they mock her efforts, not only because their intentions are malign, but because the House of the Undying is built on visions, not truth, which might as well not exist. So the Undying shift from word to image, their collective hive mind heart sending phantoms and indigos streaking toward her through the gloom. It's a 3D phantasmagoria, a fully immersive holodeck. It's truth in that Danny has gone beyond the stories told her by Viserys, the rumors of another world that she's never known. This is almost the real thing. <laughs> the Undying stick with the threefold structure at first. This is a transitional period in between words and images in which images are structured by the word. So she's the mother of dragons, but also these other things, these other monikers they give her. These other masks to wear, like the seven gods whom star one over in Westeros. Danny is also the daughter of death. Viserys dies once more before her, and so too does Rhaegar. Rubies flying like drops of blood, beauty and mortality brought together in a single image. And I think it's one of the most, like I was saying in my intro thoughts, this is one of the most evocative moments in, in this vision of the rubies flying like drops of blood. Because not only were the rubies flying, but that is also the place where Robert Baratheon caved the breastplate of Rhaegar Targaryen in with his warhammer. So it was not just rubies, it was also blood flying out too. And something, just a little piece of, of trivia, minutia if you want to call it that, is that George did confirm in a Sospake Martin in the late 90s, I want to say, that the name of the woman that Rhaegar spoke as he was laying dying was actually Lyanna Stark. So, again, George is a romantic at heart here as he's writing this chapter, and he still has that la as the moment where Rhaegar is the last, the name of the woman that he speaks is that of his true love, one of his true loves, Lyanna of House Stark. The deaths of Danny's brothers left her abandoned, forsaken, but... She never would have become mother of dragons and a leader in her own right if they had lived. She's a woman in a world run by men, and that applies not only to the lives her brothers lived, but to the life her son could have lived. This image of Rago that Danny sees is what Piat and the Undying were talking about when they said, some of these images refer to things that never happen at all. This is a morrow that never was. Rago, Cal and King alike with his copper skin and his silver gold hair, like the two gods that Danny prays to. It's something she wanted so badly, the future she saw die back in book one. But hey, what's behind Rago? A burning city, and you can guess which one it is. Her story also would have been truncated if Rago had lived, set aside in favor of his, just as would have happened if either of her brothers had lived. These dreams are dead, the bitter and sweet alike. Danny is the one left to fulfill them now in her own way, re reborn in their ashes. And that applies not only to her as a person in universe, but as a character. These are the narrative paths not taken, sacrificed in favor of hers. And, and of interest to those who are into sigils, which George being one of those people who seems really into sigils, is that he ends up, that is George, ends up reusing Rago's future that never was sigil for another character, namely Agor Rivers, a.k.a. Bittersteel sigil. Originally, Bittersteel's personal sigil was, and this is a quote from George, a gray long sword displayed bendy sinister with a black dragon's head above and a red horse's head below, both facing out on a white field. 
But in 2005, George R. Martin sent along an email to Amok, the Russian artist who does character portraits. You've probably seen if you browse the Song of Ice and Fire wiki, not me, of course, because I'm hashtag not a nerd, saying that George had decided to change Bitter Steel Sigil to a winged red stallion on a golden field. Only the horse has big black dragon wings instead of the usual Pegasus-style feathered angel wings, and he's snorting fire. Darling back for a moment when george was writing the scene from a clash of kings he hadn't admired he hadn't imagined the black fires or bitter steel as a character yet that came between clash and storm and then there was a few years between the vision of rego here and the house of the dying and also a few more years between him imagining the black fires up and george retconning bitter steel's actual sigil so does this mean anything does it speak to bitter steel's potential fate or a future duncan eggs novella Eh, probably not. As George R. R. Martin told Amok that the reason why he was changing the sigil was that he, quote, came up with a much cooler image. That much cooler image was, of course, the same one that he invented back in the 90s. Rego's sigil as imagined by Danny in her sideways future. Yeah, that's great. George is kind of picking apart these different paths and applying things to characters that, you know, he he's actually going with from these characters he didn't. And so now that she is born of these different narrative pathways, now that she is born of death, the daughter of death, what is Danny to do with her life? Well, she is to be the slayer of lies, stripping away the illusions as she has done in the House of the Undying. These are narrative paths that challenge hers, knowingly or not. In order to come into her own, for better and for worse, she has to supplant them. They reflect different aspects of her story, standing in for different struggles she must face as she goes back round the Wheel of Time to Westeros. The first one is obvious, even to a first-time reader. This is Stannis. He's a king with those Baratheon blue eyes, he's got the red sword of heroes, and he's given up his own shadow to Melisandre twice in this book. Does this mean Danny will come into a direct conflict with Stannis? I doubt it. Danny's link to the North will most likely be Jon, who will only come into power in the North after Stannis has had his complete arc. Rather, this image points to how Stannis acts as a cautionary tale for the reader in regards to where Danny's story is ultimately headed. He starts on Dragonstone, her birthplace, right after she resurrects the dragons. He's got his claim, as does she, but also an increasingly sinister reputation, as does she. Stannis liberates people, but only in the context of his own dominion, only as long as he's mm -hmm. still ultimately in charge, and that becomes part of Danny's story as well. Viserys and Robert die in A Game of Thrones, leaving Danny and Stannis as claimants for their respective houses. Both of them go through magically influenced trials in A Clash of Kings and sudden reversals of military fortune in A Storm of Swords. Danny with Dracarys, Stannis showing up at the wall. When we check in with them in uh, A Dance with Dragons, they are both trying to establish themselves in foreign territory where more people hate them than love them, <laughs> and it's not going to end well. Stannis will wind up rejected despite taking several dramatic and even heroic steps, and he will choose the fire. The same fate is going to befall Danny. But in the process, she will embody the, the Azora High archetype more than he ever did, which is what this vision is referring to more than anything else. In A Dance with Dragons, the Red Priests of Atlantis declare to their followers that Danny is the true messiah figure, and she will take over where Stannis leaves off, basically, in the story. Stannis' red sword glows like sunset, as George writes it, even though Azora High is supposed to bring the light, bring the dawn. Instead, it's nightfall, hence the blue eyes Stannis has, the blue eyes of the others. And so Danny has to navigate the quandary of those opposites coming together, the Song of Ice and Fire. I like that a lot. I, Stannis being both the forebearer of Daenerys and, and as a warning for, for Danny, and also being the lie, the lie that, he, that she has to slay, that, that Stannis Baratheon is Azor Hyberborn. It's 
a metaphorical slaying of that lie, which Aemon points out to Samuel in A Storm of Swords when he asks if there was heat from the sword that Stannis drew when Stannis is up at Castle Black waving around his sword. Heat from the sword? Samuel thought back. The air around it was shimmering the way it does above a hot brazier. And Aemon says, yet you felt no heat, did you? And the scabbard that held the sword, it is wood and leather, yes? I heard the sound when his grace drew out the blade. Was the leather scorched, Sam? Did the wood seem burnt or blackened? No, Sam admitted. Not that I could see. And then later in Feast, on his deathbed, Eamon comes out and just just tweets it. We all deceive ourselves when we want to believe. Melisandre, most of all, I think. The sword is wrong. She has to know that. Light without heat. An empty glamour. The, the sword is wrong, and the false light can only lead us deeper into darkness. Sam, Daenerys is our only hope. While doing the, the prep for this episode, I had this thought that if Stannis was the lie that Danny had to slay, that clearly Melisandre was lying at some level about Stannis as Azor Hyreborn. And yes, she is lying about the sword as she is very definitely glamoring it and using her magic and her potions in order to make it glow on fire. And it's a fake lightbringer, as Davos notes back in his first chapter in A Clash of Kings. But that quote from Sam shows that Melisandre is self-deceiving herself about Stannis as Azor Hyreborn. She's not quite the cynic that maybe I thought her originally. She doesn't believe that she does actually believe that Stannis is the Azor High figure. But Stannis, with her dragon serving as Lightbringer, which is my preferred theory of what Lightbringer actually means, clearly slay queens the lie that Stannis is Azor High reborn. Agreed. She's got the proof of concept that he really doesn't. Mm-hmm. This- the second vision is only clear on reread, when you come back after a dance with dragons. The mummer's dragon waved before the cheering crowd refers to young Grift, a.k.a. Aegon VI Targaryen. <laughs> the mummer in question is Varys, who was a mummer as a child and retained the skills of performance and diversion from those days. Young Grift is his tool. He is a manipulated image that Varus is deploying to win over the people, a manipulated image like those in the House of the Undying. He's the idea of a perfect king, like Renly before him. As with the image of Stannis, it's presentation versus reality, a central dynamic of the House of the Undying. So Danny has to slay the lie of young Grift's parentage. And unlike with Stannis, this will probably take the form of a direct confrontation. The second dance of the dragons that George warns us about in Orion's released chapter from the winds of the winter, from the winds of winter, red dragon versus black. George follows up on this idea of young Grift as a puppet in a stage show, existing as a projected target for Danny's wrath in her next chapter. And this image draws us back to what many consider the original novel in the Western canon, Don Quixote. George draws from it, as so many writers have. You can see that with Brienne and Pod in A Feast for Crows, especially. The eponymous protagonist projects himself into situations, assuming that his self-appointed status as knight-errant is exactly what's needed. In truth, he tends to have either no effect, at best, or just make things worse. (laughs) He invents meta-narratives for himself by misinterpreting what he sees, the most famous example being the windmills he imagines are giants. And you can see the connection to the young Grift prophecy and the prophecies of the House of the Undying as a whole. They are incomplete, and so the reader and Danny can't help but project into them, as the author knows all too well. They're just an image being waved on a pole before us. But as we've been talking about with Pale Fire and The Shining and House of Leaves, these metafictional works don't just depict the limits of perception. They act as examples of the limits of perception. The second book of Don Quixote, published years later but now generally presented as one volume, brings the protagonist up against his own reputation as a character in stories. He has to struggle with hearsay and imposters. (laughs) It's, again, all about the manipulated image. Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick fighting over The Shining from the outside, or John Shade and Charles Kimbote fighting over Pale Fire from the inside as characters. Don Quixote really began 
the metafictional tradition in a lot of ways, cementing our addiction to the mirage, and George is applying it to Danny. I agree. And and I think talking about the meta context of the creation of A Song of Ice and Fire, George is developing these plots. We have to remember that young Grift is in concept form here in George's mind. The Blackfire story, as I was saying, will come after A Clash of Kings is published in a series of emails that Elio Garcia will receive from George R. Martin in 1999. But in this, we see the gardening process at work. Like I talked about in part one of our analysis of, of Danny Four, I have this essay I'm dabbling at broadly speaking called the bastard narrative which will unpack this at greater length here i'm just going to point out that between a game of thrones and a clash of kings george r martin published the hedge knight which featured one arian bright flame a hero who his father baycar targaryen sent into exile to lists at the end of the novella maybe george was planning for a descendant of arian bright flame to appear as the mumbers dragon at this point when he's writing the house of the undying and again that's only a theory and I'm quite confident that George won't answer this question before the story actually closes. The gardening comes in by way of how Varus is descending from Bliss and how baby Aegon's head was a red ruin as Ned recalls in A Game of Thrones. Pycelle tells Ned that Varus was a slave born in Lists, and between A Game of Thrones and the Hedge Knight, George may have decided that Arian was going to Lists, and thus Varus descended from Arian. Again, it's a tenuous connection. I fully admit that up front. So too, the Mummer's Dragon lie that Danny has to slay was likely written after the Hedge Knight and may have been tied to Arian and Varys as well. All the same, the pitch letter doesn't record a second or really any Dance of the Dragons, Mummer's Dragon, Young Grift, or anything of this matter. This is story expansion. And like I was saying in part one of this analysis, this three-part analysis, the Mummer's Dragon is a clear moment where we can see George doing that actual expansion. As to why George expanded the story, I think the Mummer's Dragon is supposed to be an obstacle for Danny. It, in effect, it complicates her narrative. She'll have to fight not the hated Lannisters when she shows up to Westeros. It's not Cersei. It's not Joffrey. It's not even Jaime the Kingslayer. Instead, she'll be slaying the lie of young Griff's identity, as you were saying, his shadow on a wall of being the son of Rhaegar Targaryen. And we have to remember that the vision is of crowds cheering the Mummer's Dragon. Aegon, young Grift, is going to be really, really popular when he hits Westeros with the shining optics of Rhaegar behind him, the chivalry of the Reach, a beautiful queen in the form of Ariane, the support of the popular faith militant sea war in my 35-part Blood of the Conqueror series from 2016. So when Danny slays the live young Grift's identity and slays the Grifter himself, it'll be a hard-fought campaign. And I'm sure it'll be an act of immense tragedy as Aegon... Honestly, if we're being honest about him, he really isn't a monster like Joffrey. He's just a kid who everyone is fashioning a nerve around him, and killing him is going to be super fucking sad, and I'll be sad about it. I think that's exactly the twist, and you always do such a great job of weaving the backstory and what we know of George's writing process together. You do that better than anybody, so I think that's that's exactly right. Thank you. It's really kind of you. So, talking about the Slayer of Lies section, the third lie is really the only mysterious one left. What's this tower? What's the stone beast? And what does Shadowfire mean? There are several interpretations out there. One is that this image refers to John Connington. He is a stone beast because he's a griffin with grayscale, and he's breathing shadow fire in that he's propping up young Grift, who is probably in truth a black fire, black fire, shadow fire. And that is solid evidence, but I think it's strange that we would see two visions of the same lie. Like we just saw a vision about young Grift and his parentage. So why would George be redundant like that? Yeah. Another interpretation is that this image is referring to Melisandre. She's trying to birth a stone dragon, some kind of beast like this. But again, isn't that part of the Stannis is Azor High lie that we just saw? Now, the show featured a resurrected dragon breathing shadow fire at the broken tower of Eastwatch. Maybe Danny's going to have to fight that kind of tragic threat in the books as well. Now, I've said before that I think the show's Night King 
got a couple of major beats that belong to Euron in the books, primarily mm. bringing down the wall. Euron is trying to seize a dragon, and he says he wants a tall tower to leap from, so maybe that smoking tower is the high tower, and this represents Euron. He is invading Old Town. And I like that option because it makes all three Slayer of Lies prophecies about the people who are claiming to rule Westeros, as Dany does. Stannis and Euron and Young Grift. She would have to remove them all to take power. So will she take on Euron directly? Well, I'm going to say more about that in the final <laughs> part of our five-part look at the Forsaken for patrons. Maybe. Whether it's Euron or not, I think the Undying with these Slayer of Lies prophecies are establishing Danny as the ultimate seeker of truth. She's slaying lies, even as truth itself becomes harder and harder to find. I just have to say, I freaking love this idea that Euron it, it fits that narrative really, really well. Fits this portion of the House of the Undying, a breathing shadow fire atop a tower. To add on to your point about Euron, we have to recall that Euron is first introduced by name in Theon's first chapter in A Clash of Kings, and then his identity is established even further in Theon's second chapter, where we learn he's reading somewhere, and it's mentioned how terrible and awful but powerful that he is. Then, in Danny's final da- final Clash chapter, Zaro brings up this person. Mystery. Who is this? Eurothai Nightwalker and his use of glass candles. Eurothon, as we talked about in part one of our series of The Forsaken and elsewhere, is very likely Euron Greyjoy hiding out in Karth, who then rolls out, captures Warlock, steals Dragonbiter, Dragonbiter, and very peacefully takes power in the Iron Islands before starting Apocalyptic Madness, Madness in Greater Westeros. So Euron gets established off-page here in A Clash of Kings, and then we have this prophecy that Danny gets. I love it. Yeah. Euron atop the high tower, breathing shadow fire as a dragon rider. Whoops, did I spoil one of our your points from part five of the second coming our five-part analysis of the forsaken which we'll be recording in just a few days and releasing soon thereafter i'm sorry oh don't worry i got plenty to talk about there so look forward to that episode folks for sure <laughs> all right so danny was born of death she's a daughter of death and she must slay lies so how do you go from one to the other what's the mechanism what's the link it's marrying fire she's the bride of fire danny referred to the birth of her dragons as a wedding of sorts like her wedding to drogo She married the fire, and the dragons are their children. Just as her relationship to her family is built on death, the daughter of death, just as her relationship to Westeros is built on lies, her relationship to marriage, partnership, intimacy, and sex is built on fire, passion, and destruction. Her silver horse led her beneath a sea of stars to Drogo. That was the end of childhood and the beginning of adulthood, and she birthed the fire from his remains. At the other end of that road awaits the blue flower in the Wall of Ice, Jon Snow, Rhaegar and Lyanna's legacy literally on ice in the far (laughs) north. And Ned recalls Lyanna twice with blue winter roses, once in her crypt tomb and once as the laurel flowers that Lyanna received when Rhaegar won at the tourney of Harrenhal. That's the the one that Rhaegar handed to her after as the the crown of victory that that he hands to her. Metaphorically speaking, the blue flower growing from a cheek of ice is the strongest metaphorical evidence that we see of RLJ in the series as it connects Jon specifically to Lyanna. But as you're pointing out, George is only partly seeding the narrative with clues to this reveal. The other part is the effect that John will have on Danny himself and herself. I think uh, I think a lot of people look at the relationship between John and Danny from season seven and eight of the Throne Show, and and come away feeling a little cold by it. I, I, I count myself in this camp, and this is one of those areas where I hope that George will do a better job of establishing the build up for the relationship before the relationship, and then do a good job actually building up that relationship in the story and in in text. But that is actually coming in the narrative, because as George R. R. Martin told director Alan Taylor in 2010, when he visited the Morocco set of Game of Thrones, which Game of Thrones was, was filming season one in Morocco, quote, John and Danny were kind of the point. 
that at the time there was a huge vast array of characters and John was a lowly, you know, bastard sum. So it wasn't clear to us at the time, but George R. R. Martin did sort of say things that made it clear that the meeting and the conversions of John and Danny were sort of the point of the series. So, concept- so conceptually, I think George R. R. Martin has always been on the right track with John and Daenerys. We're going to have to see how it pays off an execution come the future of the story, but I do trust in George's ability to tell a story that doesn't leave me quite as cold as the show did about their relationship. Judging from this image, he's going to try to make it emotional. They're going to make this sweet smell together. Mutual passion, mutual fire like their mutual Targaryen blood, but that wall of ice persists, the Stark half from which John grew. If season 8 is any indication, John's turn against Danny will be motivated in large part by his fears of what could become of Winterfell under her rule. She is the Bride of Fire, the fire that burned up Drogo, but it's the snow that will snuff that fire out, even even though she becomes his literal bride instead. Hmm. Both these images are lovely on the surface. The one of the, the, the silver horse beneath the Sea of Stars, the one of the blue flower in the Wall of Ice. But decay is lurking underneath, and remember, sweet smells often cover up decay. Drogo has joined that Sea of Stars. One of these romances already ended in fire and blood, and so too will the one with John. In between these two visions is a vision of that truth. It's a corpse bound to the brow of a ship, hurtling forward, unable to change their destiny, their date with death. <laughs> this is the ambigu- ambiguous one of the three. As with the stone beast on the smoking tower in the previous set. Is this corpse on the ship Aaron Dampere, based on the Versaken? So does it indicate Danny might wed Euron? Or is it Victorian, given that he might be a resurrected corpse, he's taking a ship eastward to Danny? Is it John Connington? He's got the grayscale. He takes ships across the narrow sea. And I hesitate to say that the Bride of Fire section is necessarily referring to literal marriages because there is no image for his Darzo Lorak. On the other hand, George might not have just had his Darzo Lorak in mind at this point in the writing process. So maybe Danny is going to wed a Greyjoy or maybe George intended to her too at some point. I mean, it's possible, right? I mean, like I was saying before, Euron has dispatched Victarion to Slaver's Bay in order to retrieve Daenerys as his bride. Uh, but I also think it might refer to John because he will likely be a resurrected corpse. Maybe this is the aftermath of John killing Danny, sailing into exile, metaphorically speaking. And that kind of bittersweet ending that George R. R. Martin has talked about, smiling sadly, is fitting that imagery in my mind, so to speak. So maybe this is more of like the trajectory of the of the. Maybe this image is more of the chronology of the images and the trajectory of John and Danny's story, how they meet, how they get together, and how John sails away into exile after he has snuffed her out, snow has snuffed out fire, and that's the end, the end state. Again, I'm not entirely sure, but that did kind of strike me as I was going through this chapter. I agree. I think that could, it could represent that, that kind of that arc and that movement in their relationship towards each other and away from each other. And in the end, fire is Danny's true husband. She falls in love with the fire she sees in others, but they're all mortal, containers for that fire, and then they all fade, disappointing her. We started with words, three fires, three mounts, three treasons being described for us. Then we shifted to sets of images accompanied by words, slayer of lies, here's some images referring to that. And now we drop words. Language can no longer express what the undying are showing Danny. No description will suffice. Imagery takes over, a movie montage made up of pointillist dots in time and space. It's just a smeared impression of existence. This is the psychedelic peak of her trip, and George's purest expression of the wonder and terror unlocked by opening your third eye to art. 
The very air is coming alive with images. The borders between the inner labyrinth of the mind and the outer labyrinth of the world coming down. George cuts from the shadows in Miri's tent to the dragon bursting from Miri's brow, but with young Danny at the house with the red door in between, as if the shadows were converted to dragons through Danny's longing and need. The shadows of the past give way to the onslaught of the future, bursting from your brow, the third eye wide open. We see the white lion running through the grass of the Dothraki Sea, and then in the same grass, the poisoner from Vice Dothrak is being dragged to his death. Life and death along parallel tracks, tracing each other's steps, as they do throughout Danny's story. The Dothraki crones are being reborn in water, kneeling before Danny, hinting that she will return to the Dothraki Sea and take over every Kalasar in the Winds of Winter. And I love our friend Aziz from History of Westeros. And I also love his theory that the crones shivering have jumped into the lake to escape Drogon's dragon fire and are coming out of the lake to kneel before the Mother of Dragons and the Khaleesi of Cows. So this is something that we may see in the Winds of Winter. Absolutely. And George cuts from them kneeling to slaves rising from their knees, baptized in blood as the crones were in water, calling her mother like the mountain, the mother of mountains. Here we see Slaver's Bay taking over Danny's story, but nestled symmetrically with the Dothraki plot. Tempting as it is, though, to impose structure here like I'm doing, the point is that we are beyond structure now. No links exist between these images beyond our beholding of all of them. It's like a stained glass window displaying Danny's life shattered on top of us. After leading us by the hand through this exquisite mirror ball structure he has created, George is now smashing the mirror and abandoning structure. The effect is both nauseating and exhilarating, as it is for Danny. There's kind of a feeling in my mind that we're looking, we're, we're through the looking glass here, climbing through mirrors to see the world where time is running forwards and backwards at this part of the house in the Undying. The final vision has Danny's triumph that we see in A Storm of Swords, where she wipes the floor with the slavers and becomes the Mysa to freed slaves to her children. Mysa, they called. Mysa, Mysa. They were all smiling at her, reaching for her, kneeling before her. Mela, some called her. Weathers said Alia and Kathy or Tato. But whatever the tongue, it all meant the same thing. Mother. They are calling me mother, Danny thought. It's a powerful moment in the series, almost akin to Rob Stark being acclaimed King of the North at the end of A Game of Thrones. Unfortunately, that's not at all what's occurring in reality here. These are not the hands of her children reaching for her here in the House of the Undying. No, it's not. It's all the people who need Danny, she thinks. All the people she imagines need her crowding around her. She's giving herself to them, her life, her inner fire. But yeah, just in case you forgot, this is Karth. This is the House of the Undying. And nothing here is ever as it appears. These are not supplicants. These are the undying themselves, gathered around Danny, their hands slipping along her arms, down her legs, tweaking her nipples. All of a sudden, they can move, and she cannot. It's the gut-churning logic of nightmares or horror movies, in which suddenly you can't run, and your killer doesn't stay dead. Yikes. All of those connections were illusions. All of that structure was being manipulated. Danny followed a truth like a mirage... Over the edge. The Undying used the lure of prophecy, of narrative, to turn her into their chattel. She feels vampire teeth on her throat as if they're going to suck her dry. And the most hideous detail in a chapter full of them is when one of the Undying starts trying to feed on Danny's eyes. <clears throat> Imagine that. All of the House of the Undying has been, a, has been about the doors of perception, the eye of the beholder. 
What more blunt breakdown of the fourth wall can you imagine than a sorcerer of storytelling devouring the POV character's eyes? Not only, in, not only is Danny in mortal peril, but she is symbolically losing her perception, her way of looking at the world. The Undying are all about the image, locked away with their fantasies behind the doors of perception, so of course they would desire to feed like vampires on the font of vision. This is what's waiting over the rainbow, through the projected arch of story and myth. You'll be eaten alive by it. Your fire feeds its immortality. Absolutely, and George wrote a great story in the 1980s that we are covering on Patreon called Fever Dream. And here, the Undying here resemble those vampires from that book, in that they're drawing life and survival from Danny. And part of that motif that George is doing here is that he might be playing with the idea that the Undying are kept alive by the consumption of magical beings. Because, as they say, so many people have come to the, to the house of the Undying. Are they being brought here to be fed on? Uh, it seems like that way. And maybe there's a connection here between what is potentially seen in A Dance with Dragons with Bran consuming Jojen to absorb his green sight ability. The difference, of course, being that A, Bran is completely unaware that's what he's eating in the quote-unquote acorn paste that Bloodraven and the Children of the Forest feed him, and B, the undying are selfish motherfuckers who are eating Danny and absorbing her power to keep themselves alive with zero fucks given about the rest of the world. Please note that I am not condoning cannibalism for what Blood or what Bloodraven and the Children of the Forest are likely doing with Jojen to help Bran. I am only saying that it's done not from a place of selfishness. But please, do not eat human beings. You heard, heard, you heard it here first on the Not A Cast podcast. Unless you're Eliana from Girls Gone Cannibal, far about an exception for her. She has her, her fascination with cannibalism, of course. But yeah, Danny is a fictional character being torn to pieces by authors and readers. We use her as fuel to fill up our dream balloons with fresh narrative grist. She is finally trapped in the liquid atmospherics of Karth, the goal of everyone she's met here, except maybe Quaithe. The mirage worked. Danny is doomed and will be fully absorbed into the image factory. What saves her? Fire. Her hmm. id, her passion, her personal creative spark. Drogon is her child as she thinks about it, but he's also her on some level. She created him out of wild alchemy as an artist does, and now Drogon cuts the Gordian knot, resolving the human heart in conflict with itself by tearing the damn thing to pieces. The source of visions is mortal meat, like anything else. The Wizard of Oz in back of this place is just a man behind the curtain, and it turns out that without their images, the undying are mortal after all. They are indeed. I mean, Drogon is the MVP of Danny's story here, finally seeing through the bullshit of it all, and he gives the undying a piece of his mind. Or Dragonfire, both. The destruction is... Utter and complete, as Zorozo and Doxus will visit Danny in Marine to Dance with Dragons and inform her that the Undying are all now dead, thanks to her. And Danny's handmaid, Jiqui, will confidently tell Danny that she sent these Meiji to hell. Good riddance. Fuck you all. Die. In the end, for the Undying anyways, the Undying were lies. They could die. They did die. It's a metaphor for Karth, for stories, for us. Anyone can die. Everyone will die. To include the Undying. And as they die, Danny lives. She can blink again. Her heartbeat races forward, replacing the dark heart Drogon is ripping apart. She is free of undeath. The blue shadows around her burn. Indigo turned to orange, as George describes it. And as you were saying earlier, his command of color is never better than here. Hmm. The undying have bones so light they're like tallow. Danny brushes them aside as if they're not really there. Were they really there, physically? 
Their flesh was crumbling parchment, as George writes, another of the major meta-moments in this most meta of chapters. The Undying were made of paper, like their house of leaves. They attained immortality through story. But then they invited Daenerys Targaryen, a fantasy protagonist on a circular hero's journey, to a walking tour behind the fourth wall. This exposed her to them, but it also exposed them to her. And now she has literally set the parchment paper of their story hive mind on fire. Danny and Drogon run for it. The floor seems to move under her feet, guiding her along. In part, this is just the drugs. But it's also that the House of the Undying feels horribly alive. And we are just on the edge of our seats at readers at this point, trying to see how it's going to be resolved. The labyrinth spits Danny right back out the door like a mouth where she started. But everything has changed in the process of going full circle. The structure is complete, and so the House of the Undying falls, like the House of Usher, because the fantastical projection of narrative is resolved. There's no reason for it to exist anymore. But now Danny must return to the real world, so to speak, of the rest of her story. And in that world, she has now made a committed enemy out of Piat Pri. He gibbers in an unknown language. It's the last of the House of the Undying's countless references to text and translation. We don't know what he's saying any more than we can cont- completely interpret the images inside the house. But despite the doors of perception remaining closed, we can guess. <laughs> Piat's world is literally crumbling, and so he is pushed beyond expression. And even as Danny sinks to the cool green grass, coming down from her trip in the benevolent arms of nature, her story and life will never be the same again. Yeah, I mean, this turn for Danny at the end of A Clash of Kings Daenerys 4, it feels as strong of a turn in her story as what happened at the end of A Game of Thrones and her birthing dragons. Danny became the mother of dragons there. Here she becomes essentially a figure of further and greater prophetic destiny. The mother of dragons grows in power, destiny, dread, wonder, and terrors. It's a frightening and exhilarating picture. It's it's the story of Daenerys Targaryen in micro form here in a clash of kings Daenerys four in the house of the undying and it's going to be carried forward throughout her journey and her narrative going forward in storm a dance of dragons the winds of winter eventually and the end of dream of spring it's a great story and i think like uh the one aspect i want to bring up as we close out the depth portion of this is that it's I would say the House of the Undying is not just Danny just leveling up, moving up to the next point in her story where she's becoming more powerful and stronger and getting better. Instead, like I was saying before, this is a complication for her. This is what drives a lot of her wonder, uh, wonders at who the treasons are, who are these people, the, the identities that are fulfilling the different archetypes and the different roles that we see in the House of the Undying. It doesn't fill her with resolve. It doesn't fill her with goodness. It fills her with questions. It fills her with complications it fills her eventually with paranoia too uh it's so great and it's so terrible at the same time uh danny daenerys targaryen the story so that about wraps up for our depth portion of the episode getting to foreshadowing and groundwork and you want to take us away on uh all, any uh, was there any foreshadowing or groundwork in this chapter i don't remember I just gotta use get my uh carrie elvis from princess bride voice here to say death first <laughs> Absolutely not. For the third time in a row, folks, we're not doing foreshadowing and groundwork for the House of the Undying (laughs) because the House of the Undying is foreshadowing and groundwork. We will restore this part of our episode structure when we get to non-House of the Undying chapters starting next week. So we're going to shift instead to our theory and discussion portion of the episode. Do you want to take us away there, sir? 
Yes, sir. So, uh, you know, we've spent a lot of time unpacking all the visions from this chapter. And, and given that this is a meta chapter, let's let's meta ourselves. Let's meta the fandom. So why is the Song of Ice and Fandom, Song of Ice and Fire fandom so obsessed with theories and the future of the series? What happens in the Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring? And I was curious because, you know, one of the things I, I, I came into reading your work because you were not so much into the theories. Of course, I did read your Eldritch Apocalypse theory, but I became into it because of all of the different character analyses that you were doing on characters like Quentin and Tyrion and Davos and Theon. And I was curious, does do you think all of this theorizing as a fandom comes at the expense of enjoying and analyzing the published books of the series? So two very good questions. And to take the first one first, I think there's a number of factors coming together. One is just the length of time in between books, which just gives us endless time to speculate and, you know, take back theories and get more intricate with our theories, bounce them off each other, combine them. Another part is it's just, a, you know, it's a social glue. It's a way of relating to each other, a way of starting conversations and making friends. You know, I think also this series started getting big also when just, you know, internet hive minds stopped being a nerd thing like they were in the 90s. Yeah. They got away from Usenet and started being just something everyone was doing. You know, and there's just the, the the catharsis and the desire to be right that I think informs a lot of this. <laughs> and I think you know, everyone feels that to a certain extent. But yeah, I think that is that particular part of it, the desire to win, I think is acts completely counter to actually enjoying the text. <laughs> and it's easy to just suddenly turn to a Song of Ice and Fire into this like... Like, it's an anthropological or archaeological thing, you know? Like, you're just reading it as a signal of clues and signs. Right. And there's some value to be had out of that, but man, are you missing what's what's really in there and what, what you can what you can get out of it. Uh, so I don't think they necessarily contradict one another, but mm-hmm. I think they, 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 they very often can in a way that, yeah, talking about, you know, like, character analysis regarding, like, a dance with dragons and stuff, I think the, the feast and dance get, get unappreciated in part because their virtues are not in... Uh, telling you whether you were right about stuff you theorized in the first three books. I mean, there's some of that, but most of it's not in that territory at all. And you have to just have a different mindset to enjoy that. I think that's a really good point. And I think one of the aspects about Song of Ice and Fire and when it became big is that it became big, honestly, after Game of Thrones came out. Obviously, George R. Martin was a best-selling author before 2011, the advent of season one of Game of Thrones. But it ended up coming to the fore when you had a series of television programs that were out there to include game of thrones but before that a show like lost which are friends from the storm of spoilers podcast now called the storm podcast are currently covering going through episode by episode of of the show lost and i remember the lost fandom being like this every episode at the end of every episode you'd have ten thousand people going on message boards and being like wait what does each thing mean here is my theory about this and there was a whole wikipedia called lostpedia which ended up going through all these mysteries and being like this is what this could potentially mean this is what it could mean here this is what it could mean here so i think we've had a somewhat of a change in fandom and it's and a change in how quickly we can access information as george R. martin has talked about before back when he was kind of a he was a popular author, but he wasn't like a world famous author with the most highly anticipated book of, of all time, or at least in the past couple of years that's about to come out that's any day now. He would be able to like go on like fan forums and then interact with fans. But now he can't really do that because he has like 10,000 people who are all trying to figure out this mystery. For instance, take the mystery of John's parentage, right? George R. R. Martin has talked about how he thinks that it's great that people are theorizing and, and coming up with ideas, but in the olden days, he wouldn't, you wouldn't have 50,000, 100,000 people working all together and combing through the text to find all of the clues in order to bring 
John into in order to determine that John is the Song of Ice and Fire is, is the son of, of Rhaegar and, and Lyanna. Now, I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think your theories are a bad thing. I've written, you know, a few theories along the way, so to speak. And and I enjoy that part of the fandom. And I think it's a good creative outlet for fans to kind of enjoy the series. I, I do think that it does sometimes come at the expense of enjoying the books, because I think there is an aspect to not every theory, but some theories where you're like just drawing little bits of text from here and there and there in order to kind of like bring this theory together. When I think maybe we would do better as a fandom if we start looking at the broad strokes, not just the broad strokes, but like the overall text of something. So I think it's like really good that we have things like your work on all of the different characters in A Dance with Dragons, Adam Feldman's work on the Marinese plot, others as well who have done fantastic character work that have kind of like drawn us as a fandom back away from the theories and just focusing on theories because ultimately this is a story about characters and I think we see this here in the House of the Undying where yeah there is a lot going on which is hinting at future events from the story of A Song of Ice and Fire but it's also done being done through the context of a character being done through Daenerys Targaryen. These events and these visions that Danny is seeing here in the House of the Undying are all have really strong emotional connotations to Danny. You can only look at Willem Derry and Rhaegar Targaryen and all these characters and not feel what Danny is feeling and seeing these people and seeing the nostalgia that's of course being weaponized against her. But you can these are real emotions that Danny is experiencing even even if these are manipulated images. And uh, you know, by all means go nuts on on writing theories. Come up with the next great theory for a Song of Ice and Fire that solves something that people have not even realized is something worth solving. At the same time, I do think that it's worth being called back to the story itself, being called back to the characters, and it makes for a, a richer, fuller story to involve ourselves as a fandom into more of the character work and into more of the analysis of the story. That, that those are my thoughts on it. Again, I, I know that you know there's this fandom is enormous now at this point. We've got a great podcast and a great community of folks who are here who do a lot of theorizing and a lot of writing about the series and this is not meant to say don't do that it's just meant to be like you know enjoy both theories and analysis you know everything has to be balanced ice and fire one cannot be greater than the other i think it's important to be holistic like you were saying consider theories as part of the overall story instead of just getting lost down the rabbit hole but i think just for me the dividing line is what you're looking forward to about the winds of winter and what you would get out of it and whether you're just imposing a rubric on it or whether you take it on its own terms as a work of art. And I think if you don't take it on its own terms as a work of art, you're not going to get much enjoyment out of it. And that dividing line is going to be really clear if and when we get it. And I think yeah. so that'll that'll that'll, that'll uh, separate us out in terms of what our motives really are. And I think we'll, we'll make it clear. Yeah. Can't wait for the winds of winter when all of the theories are like, oh, no, that's wrong. And that's wrong. And exactly that's wrong. Right. Exactly and Danny's right. in Marine for the next for her first nine chapters and the Death Threat to see. It's and that's, be great. and uh, that'll be the catharsis of it, to have something yeah. unexpected. That's what we want. Absolutely. I think getting that unexpected resolution for certain plot points is something that we, you know, I experienced in real time at Balticana 2016, where Georgia Mars read The Forsaken. And my own theory went, just went in, down in flames. Mm-hmm. And it was a better story as a result. So enjoy the story that George tells, even if it conflicts with your theories, is my ultimate takeaway from talking about how the Song of Ice and Fire fandom works in the context of the House of the Dying and prophecy and the future of the story. 
And I think that about wraps up for this analysis on A Clash of Kings Daenerys 4 Part 3 and A Clash of Kings Daenerys 4 in total. As always, thank you so, so much for, for listening and watching these episodes. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify. And also, if you like it, like what you he- like what you see and you're watching these episodes on our live stream, give us a thumbs up, rate and subscribe and do all those sorts of things too. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. Follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsadviceandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Marybald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Brit, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Connington, Heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjakot, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Merrifull, Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbright, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Dunadar Castle, Septon T-Bone, and Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids. Thank you as always so much to our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you folks very, very much for your support. It means so much to us. So, join us next week for A Clash of Kings Tyrion 11. We are finally out of Karth for the moment, in which Tyrion Lancer prepares the defenses of King's Landing for the imminent arrival of the king, Stannis Baratheon. She's defending King's Landing from whatever. It's, it's a thing. We'll discuss this next week for A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 11. The build-up to the Battle of the Blackwater has begun, folks. The big explosive climax of the book. We're getting into the setup for that, so that'll be a lot of fun. See you then. Cannot wait. And we'll see you all next week. <laughs>